Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and I am joined by James Hoffman. I think this is the third or fourth time James has been on the podcast. I always love having James on. He is a great talker and just fun to talk to. And if you don't know James, which I, I imagine most of you do, um, he has a PhD in sport physiology um, and is a coach for Renaissance Periodization and does loads of work with them. Hopefully some of you have the eBooks or even the audio book um, that is now available and his area of speciality is really kind of recovery. That is an area that James knows inside and out really, really well. And in uh, London on the 11th and 12th of May, if you do not know, we do have James Hoffman, Mike Isretel, and Gabe, uh, Gabriel Fondero coming over and presenting. Um, so we're really excited about that. And so if you want to pick up tickets or anything, this is going to be a nice teaser for it. Um, but if you do want to come, then please purchase your tickets. They'll be in the description box below. It'll be amazing to see you. I know James will love to see you there as well. Um, and yeah, how are you doing, James? I'm good, brother. Thanks for having me. And I'm super excited to come out and hang out with you guys again. It's always great to be on your show and, and see you in real life too. So it's going to be really fun. Yeah, it's been too long. Like, I can't believe it's been... It's been a while. Yeah, the number of years. But the first time... I've said it before, just the first time when you and Mike came over, I was like, this just has to happen more often because I don't think I'd ever really heard you guys properly present at that time. And I know even the people that were at that first seminar, they were blown away. I was blown away. Like a lot of it was new information as well that hadn't been spread out, whereas now it's, it's prolific now, which is great. That's true. Now that I think about it, that was so long ago. We hadn't even put out like a lot of the volume landmark yeah. stuff. That was... Man, you're right. That was a while ago. Jeez. It was all new. That's kind of cool. Yeah. All the long-term like periodization. And it was like, as soon as I was hearing all that, I was like, I was one of the, probably one of the first people to like implement it heavily with my clients and things. And ever since then I've been hooked because I mean, the results and the stuff you talk about are so powerful. So uh, every time you guys come as well, so the listeners are aware, it's, it's new information. It's not stuff that kind of it's the same lecture every single place that they go to. It's not just stuff that you're reading textbooks. And being able to be in the audience and ask questions is really cool. So I think people appreciate that. Well, it's really cool for me because, you know, sometimes uh, because Mike and I have such a similar background, we, we kind of get the echo chamber effect yeah. where he'll say something and I don't like maybe totally disagree. And so we kind of have to like ping pong a little bit. And then uh, we see somebody like yourself pay those ideas forward where we say, hey, volume landmarks are important. And then him and I kind of are like, yeah, that makes sense. But we're not sure if other people get it. And then yeah. we see like what you're putting out with Revive Stronger and all your content. We're like, oh, OK, cool. This does make sense. Other people are using it. Other people are finding it to be helpful. So that's like really uh, enriching for me, too, is when I see like somebody like yourself saying like making the infographics or saying like, here's what we did. That's like really I don't know, just kind of like when I see that, it really makes me feel good. Well, like it's incredibly powerful. I think I was just watching a podcast. I think it's Iron Culture. It's Omar Isuf and Eric Helms have started running it. And Mike was on there with um, John Meadows. And John Meadows, like he's aware of the volume landmarks now. And I mean, he, for all I know, he's implementing that sort of kind of idea methodology with his clients. So if you're reaching me, you're reaching people like that. It's it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. It is crazy. It's funny. It's funny when I see people who I don't even know, like I just, maybe I'm friends on Instagram for whatever reason. And they'll say like volume landmark, something, something. I'm like, that wasn't even a thing, but a few years ago, yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's a, it's a treat. Cool. So today, um, obviously when James comes over, he's going to be touching on a lot of things, recovery based training, um, and things around hypertrophy physique for physique athletes. And that's what this podcast is all about. Um, and so to give you a bit of a teaser and to really just showcase James's knowledge because he's a really, really smart guy, we're going to be going over some questions that have been submitted. So 
we had actually the first one I wanted to ask was from Brett Freeman. And he asked over on Facebook asking, what approaches to recovery have you changed in the last six to 12 months and why? I thought that was quite a cool one. That is a really good one. The last six to 12 months, a couple things that I've changed. One thing that I've been messing around with, and this is maybe, maybe not a recovery one per se, maybe a training one, or maybe a little bit of both is modifying my mesocycle lengths a little bit more strategically with my training goals. So for example, I'll know that uh, for physique related training, which I know is the big, the big basis of your clients and and followers, uh, for me, it's like four weeks up, one week down. That's, that's all I can do. I've tried to do the five and one. I've tried to do the six and one. It's fuck. No, it's just not going to happen. Right. So I know that that's like rock solid. But I also know that when I transition to strength mesocycle, so I usually will run like a, a hypertrophy macro and then follow it up with the strength macro. When I switch over to strength, I cannot do that four and one anymore. I have to be a little bit more careful. I have to switch to three and ones. So just being more cognizant of not just following the same kind of lockstep routine for all of your training goals is, is important. Even something silly like mesocycle length uh, can play a huge role. So for strength, I'll do three and ones. Other things, I started becoming a little bit more cognizant of auto-regulating my um, rest days, which has been really helpful. So I usually follow a a six-day training split, and I used to do it very rigidly, as most people do, which is I still think is a good idea. Like you have the same training days at the same times, da-da-da-da-da. For me, I just started auto-regulating my rest day. Uh, and that actually has been super massively helpful for me just as someone who is in touch with a lot of these things. I can make that decision call uh, very well, but I can also free up my schedule to do more work stuff or if I wanted to go take a hike or something for just mental recovery or something like that. That's been really good for me. Um, but you do have to be careful because you can get into the problem of not taking enough rest where you actually just do six days, repeat six days, repeat kind of pro- problem. Right. Or you can find convenient excuses like, oh, today I, I've got to go to Costco and that's guy can't train today. It's like, no, that's bullshit. You can still do both. Um, but those those are things that I've been doing lately. One thing I have been kind of looking into, which I haven't had a lot of hands on time with, is uh, like uh, some of the systems like the whoop system and some of the other kind of monitoring tools available. That's something that I'm interested in. I haven't really played around with. I would like to play around with. And I know one of my colleagues has. But that's kind of where I've been at lately. Those cool. are some of the big changes. No, I think that's really cool. And the uh, the whoop system, I remember actually, I think you brought it up in a RP plus video and I was like, I don't know, I've never heard of this thing. I think it might be an American thing or something. And so I was like looking it up, um, but it's it, it, these kind of athlete monitoring tools are really cool. And actually a question came up asking about kind of the efficacy of like heart rate variability and whether or not for a physique athlete, that's something that maybe you would advise monitoring or what are the kind of the positives and the negative aspects of that tool? Yeah, yeah. So heart rate variability actually is very, very valid uh, in terms of does it measure what it, what it seeks to measure? And the answer is yes. So it does a good job in that regard. The problem that we run into is can you use it as an effective monitoring tool for physique athletes? The answer is maybe, maybe not. So with heart rate variability, what you get is a very valid marker of something's not going quite right. You might be showing signs of overreaching or you might already be there. The problem is, is that by the time you are able to definitively say my heart rate variability is not in the the spot where it's supposed to be, it's too late. Right. And now you have to take more powerful fatigue management strategies rather than like. So, for example, um, 
if you had really, really bad nutrition the day before, like a really hard training session, and you know it, you like, man, I just, I did not eat my calories or my carbs, you know that next day is gonna be bad unless you do something, right? And so you can preemptively say like, okay, my calories were off, maybe I'm gonna eat a little bit more, maybe I'll push that one day back so I can eat more and have a better training day. That's something you can do. With heart rate variability, you can't just do something like eat more carbs or push the date back or have a light day. You have to move into something like deload or a low tr uh, volume training phase or something like that because by the time you get that measurement and you say definitively, that's off, it's too late. You're probably already overreaching or at least uh, very, very close to it. So it's a good measurement for physique athletes. I don't think it's going to be a staple, whereas for um, team sport athletes, it might be more useful because they're um, – it might be more useful for things like uh, when you don't want to see big drops in power, speed, explosiveness, right? So if heart rate variability is something that you're measuring, that can be a bolstering uh, piece of data that says, okay, I had a bad training day. My athlete is reporting to me that they're not feeling great or they're anxious or they're stressed or something like that. And now I have a physiological measurement showing that something's off right now. I got one, two, three. I got a performance psych and a fizz measure. That might be good for a team sports athlete. Uh, for physique athletes, I think performance and perceptive measures are probably going to be your go-to, whereas heart rate variability won't be a primary measurement. It'll probably be a, a supplemental, maybe a, a bolstering. So like that would be... Um, if you have a physique athlete and they're kind of like they had a couple kind of shitty training days in a row, they weren't able to get the reps they were supposed to get or they had to drop the weight a whole bunch to get the reps, you're kind of like, eh, I'm not really sure how this is going. That's a pretty strong sign that something's wrong. If you had a heart rate variability with that where you say, oh, their heart rate variability is fucked up, now you have increasing evidence to say, okay, they're not where they're supposed to be. But, but as a standalone, I probably wouldn't use it for physique people too much. Okay. And that's like why something like the whoop might be useful for physique athletes because it measures things like your work output, your sleep and your variability, heart rate variability. And then that gives you a couple things to work with rather than just one. Okay, cool. Yeah. And I guess heart rate variability, you'd need to have like a, a chest strap and kind of maybe a Garmin watch or something along those lines to try and get a good marker. I guess you could try and kind of measure it yourself, but kind of utilizing those tools would be easier. So things like yeah. performance, motivation to train, number of hours sleep, and kind of just generally how you feeling are probably easier for most people to track. Absolutely. And they're, they're also more, more powerful for the most part in terms of their actual implications, right? So for what you do, one thing that, and this is something I've, I've heard from people that I've been working with, like Jake and a couple other guys, when you use those things like the heart rate monitor on the wrist or even the whoop system, you have to be locked into that thing. It has to be on you. It has to be firm, like firmly on you, not just loosey goosey, like a watch, right? It's got to be on there. And uh, some people have to duct tape them on. Wow. Uh, that's one of the downsides of that device is that like to actually use it properly, it really has to be secure on your body. Uh, and they, I think they make some different sites. I don't know if they have a chest strap, but I think they have like other places you can put it on. But I do know that's a big limitation is like that thing's on you all the time. And if it gets if it's loose or if it moves around, it can mess it up. Cool. No, perfect. Um, we got a load of questions actually surrounding sleep. So I thought I'd kind of oh, bunch man. these all, right. all into like a row. And obviously you mentioned sleep already and we know, I mean, it's becoming more and more obvious why sleep's so important. So we, the first one I have for you is from Ghostman824 from Instagram. <laughs> okay. Actually a client of mine. So his name's Andrew. So okay. the, the is name- Is he pasty? Is that why his, his Ghostman? He, he actually is pasty. So I think that might be why. He'll probably <laughs> tell me now. <laughs> so he asked, how bad is waking up a few times in the night to go for a pee? 
Not bad. Not bad if it's just something that happens kind of incidentally. If it's one of those things where you wake up like a, all the time, every night, what I would say is you might want to think about altering your um, like hydration and eating habits before bedtime so that that's not quite so disruptive. So like, for example, I have that problem. I know that like with my casein shake before bedtime, so I always make a casein shake. I know there's a threshold about how much water I can use, where if I go above a certain amount, I'm going to wake up and have to pee. And that's annoying and it disrupts my sleep a little bit. So that's something that I've been more conscious of. And uh, if you have a lot of like, let's say you train in the evening and Maybe you have a lot of food in the evening. Maybe like you're having fruits and whole grains and some other stuff. That's just a lot of liquid you're going to end up taking indirectly just from food. So you might want to choose some like less uh, like water-based sources like fruits and stuff if you're really finding that you have to pee a lot in the night. How big of a deal is it? Not bad. Like if you get up and you go pee and you're able to go right back to sleep, usually not a huge deal. If it's one of those things where like you're – um you're laying there restless because you have to pee, but it hasn't quite registered in your brain yet where you're kind of just list like just going back and forth. I know I get like that. Do you ever feel that way? Like you have to pee and you just, you can't sleep and you can't figure it out. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. And then you realize like, Oh, I just got to go pee. Right. Uh, so that's no good. Or if you go pee and then you're like wide awake because you had gotten up and moved around, that's no good. But for the most part, like if you're able to pee and then go back to sleep and you wake up feeling mostly restful, it's not a big deal. I know, James, I don't know if you've had experience with clients when maybe if they've been a contest prep client or they've been dieting a long time. Because for me, when I was in prep, like waking up six times a night regularly probably wasn't kind of odd. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, but that's like you're also in like, you know, in those situations, you know, you're in a suboptimal thing and yeah. you know, that's just going to be part of the deal at that point. It's, it's not great, but man, you physique people just, they do all sorts of crazy shit. Yeah, the body's yeah, just not happy at that time. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, it's it's usually not a big deal. Like some people, um, I know like Mike has mentioned to me a couple times that he like goes pee like two or three times per night. For me, that would be like really disruptive. For him, it doesn't seem to bother him too much. Cool. No, great answer. So the next um, question actually relating to you talked about your Casian shake before bed. And there was a question from Mackinod who has asked uh, protein pre-bed. Uh, is there any kind of evidence for it negatively impacting sleep? I think this comes from the idea about kind of circadian rhythms and eating a lot before bed. I think it's become more widely spread that that could potentially impact sleep quality. So protein specifically, not to my knowledge, they have looked at um, just like food in general, like so eating like right before bed in general, regardless of what sources of food. And then one that they have looked at, which is kind of uh, wishy-washy, is sugar specifically. Uh, And I'm not like super, super convinced on the sugar stuff, but there is like some body of literature that says like taking a huge, huge bolus of carbohydrates before bed may impede sleep and it could be related to blood glucose regulation, something like that. I'm not super sold on that. I don't think it's uh, quite fleshed out, but there is some evidence that says, yeah, some people are more sensitive to eating a big chunk of food before bedtime. And that's something that you can play around with as part of individualizing your plan. So for like, uh, for me, for example, that doesn't bother me. I can, I can eat the house and go right to bed. Other people, right. If they have to maybe push their bedtime meal back a little bit instead of right before bed, maybe an hour before bed. Some people maybe even two hours before bed, just because all that food does have a tendency to keep them more awake for whatever reason. Now, uh, in terms of protein, there's nothing really that, that I have seen uh, that, that seems to indicate that the protein source is a big deal. It does seem that if if anything, uh, like having really, really sugary stuff may be uh, impede your sleep ability to fall asleep, but I'm not 
I'm not totally sure about that. So what I would say is try on air it a little bit for yourself. Like if you can do a casein shake and some fats, no big deal. Uh, like an hour before bed, you can try and push it back a little bit. See if you can do it like right before bed. Uh, and if you find that you like you lay down and you don't fall asleep for like 30, 45 minutes, the next time push that meal back about an hour or so and see how that goes and just trial and error until you find that sweet spot where you can lay down, fall asleep within about 15, 20 minutes or so, and then you're out. Cool. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And something you talked about there is individualization, which is obviously massive uh, for everyone. And someone has actually asked kind of, I guess, a, a bit of an individualization type of question for their sleep. Um, and that was from Tanya and she was basically saying, have you ever encountered an athlete or a client where they just seem to not need that much sleep, where they wake up and feel better when they have less sleep rather than more? <laughs> she was kind of like, I feel like now and then I do that and I feel great, but I'm worried to keep doing it because it might not be a good idea. Yeah, I have a, a very politically incorrect answer for that. A lot of people think they can do a lot of bullshit, right? <laughs> so. Uh, yes. The answer is yes. Uh, I have had people report that, but the reality is, is that it's like a weird ego thing. They are right. mostly lying to themselves. So there is like a, so there is a genetic condition, uh, which is very, very rare where people can get basically the same normal restful effects of sleep with very little sleep, like three to five hours. Right. But this is a very, very tiny, 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 tiny percentage of the population. Most of us well, we'll start to see negative effects of um, uh, not getting enough sleep if you don't get about seven hours or so, most people on average. So we usually recommend six to eight. Six is like a very consistent threshold in the literature where they say like six hours or less and you will start to have sleep deprivating effects. Somewhere around seven is where a lot of people will kind of start reporting that. And what you get a lot of the times is people who will say like, oh, I can get by on like six hours or five hours of sleep. That just means like you're used to being sleep deprived all the time. That means you could be better, right? It's one of, if there's actually a, a really awesome uh, Joe Rogan podcast episode where he has a sleep guy come in. Is it Matthew and he had this, Yes. Yeah. And he had this exact same conversation uh, where he was basically saying like, that's mostly bullshit. And what we find is like, yeah, you might you might have like a, a day or two where you maybe only got five or six hours of sleep and you woke up and you were fine. The point being is uh, don't do that all the time. Like you can get by on a day or two of suboptimal sleep conditions and it won't really have a tangible effect. The problem is, is when you start living that chronic lifestyle of under sleep, sleep deprivation, it will start to rack up. And what you will find is that your ability to lose fat and lose weight will go down. Your ability to gain muscle will go down. Your performance will go down. Your MRVs for everything will go down. It's just like a shitstorm of bad things. So for the most part, we have recommended um, like six to eight for uh, kind of recreational people and then like eight to 10 for more advanced people, which is very congruent with something like Matthew Walker, who will recommend seven to nine for most people on average, right? And so we say six to eight because six is kind of like the very consistent cutoff for sleep deprivation effects. Uh, but somewhere around like, you know, eight-ish hours per night is a very, very consistent number. And of course, there is some individualization there, but not to the point where you can get like four to five hours of sleep and call that individualization. That's not true, right? For the most part, you should be getting at least six to eight, preferably more like seven to nine for if you're a sporting type person. I guess because, yeah, I mean, the large majority, well, the entire audience here, I guess, are people who work hard in the gym. And when you demand more from your body, you therefore need more recovery, which is why you're saying kind of more advanced people need more sleep, more than likely. 
Yeah, and it's really just a matter of uh, their recovery time courses are longer because they inflict an incredible, uh, excuse me, they have just inflict more trauma on themselves than a recreational user or a newbie, right? You can, if you can squat, you know, uh, 150 kilos for sets of 10, that's just going to take a lot out of you. And it's just going to take a little longer to recover from. And you might need more of that regenerative, restorative sleep ability just to get through that next couple days. So, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with being a noob. But what we do find is that people who are more trained generally cause more fatigue and that fatigue needs more advanced strategies to dissipate. Nice. And on the same sort of kind of lines, Jay Pedro has said, so if he misses a night of sleep or he says he misses a night of sleep, but that sounds pretty horrific. So maybe just a, a poor night of sleep basically said, should he train like the following day if he knows he's had poor sleep the night before or is there other strategies? What would you advise there, James? That's a tough one. That's a good. It's a really good question. Should you train when you know you had shit sleep? It's one of those things where like that would be a direct indicator, like we said before about like the poor nutrition the day before, like, you know, that next session, if you were going to look at it in probabilities, like it's probably not going to go great, right? Even if it's not the worst training session, even if you're able to hit kind of your minimum reps and all of your sets, it's not going to be the greatest one. So that's a judgment call, right? Like if you can auto-regulate within your program, uh, excuse me, that's what I would recommend. So if you had like a real shit night of sleep and you're like, dude, I don't know about this next training session push it back a day or take a light session and then you can get back to normal training on the next day for physique athletes. I, I think, and I don't want to, uh, this is not meant to sound degrading in any way. This is just the way it is. I think, um, you can work through that problem more than your kind of traditional, like team sports style athletes, right? Why is that? Well, because if you're a weightlifter or rugby player, football player, you know, any of those things, the intensity of your session is what's really driving the gains, right? Making you stronger or more powerful. You need to hit a threshold of intensity in order for that overload to be met. For physique athletes, the amount of intensity that you actually need is relatively low. So long as you can hit kind of like a really minimum check mark number. And then after that, it's all volume. And even then, you can actually just lower the intensity a little bit to get more volume and the effects are probably pretty damn equivocal. So what I would say, if you are a more sporting like team sports, track and fields, weightlifting, powerlifting type athlete, it might be worth delaying that next session or taking a light session on that, that day and then doing a normal session later for physique athletes. You can make the judgment call. It's probably better to auto-regulate a little bit, maybe move it back if you can. If you can't, it might not be the biggest deal in the world so long as you can get that volume in. And the intensity, again, maybe not be a limiting factor for physique, so not a big deal. Yeah, I really like that answer. And I think it's it's funny because you talk about how, obviously, the relative intensity, you just need to kind of tick it off. It doesn't have to be something that's super hardcore, but a lot of bodybuilders would not be able to do that. They'd probably drive themselves into the ground <laughs> via training. <laughs> It's understandable, right? Because it's kind of like an ego thing where you're like, you got to take the weight off the bar and you're like, oh, am I getting weaker? It's like, no, you're not getting weaker. You just have a shit day. And like, you can still make a great session out of this, right? But it's it's hard and it's hard for me too, right? Nobody yeah. wants to like take the weight down, but it's not a big deal. So we've got covered all the, the sleeping questions, which is awesome. The next question we have is from Jason Tucker. And he has asked, can someone be under-recovered in a certain muscle group without soreness? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Soreness is a good indicator of um, kind of just general, the general stat, stat, excuse me, status of that muscle, right? So if you go and do a bunch of stiff-legged deadlifts and your hamstrings are fucked, right? Should you go and sprint the next day 
Probably not, right? That soreness is there to tell you like, man, you fucked those hamstrings really, really bad. You probably shouldn't do anything. Okay, pretty cool. Does that necessarily mean that uh, a lack of soreness means a lack of trauma or a lack of, you know, recovery needs? No, that does not necessarily mean that. So essentially what we have is a situation where you might be um, cutting, for example, where your soreness just goes down a lot as a result of not eating very much. And this is something that I'm sure most of you, you and your clients can relate to. When you get to like the second or third meso of cut and you get kind of depleted, you just don't really get that sore anymore. You kind of just feel blah, right? But you have still inflicted quite a bit of damage on the muscle tissue, on the connective tissue, and on the innervating nervous system components of whatever muscles that you trained, right? And those still have a recovery time course. And in fact, those recovery time courses might have actually lengthened as a result of the suboptimal nutrition uh, situation, right? Where it's just going to take longer because you're not putting as much stuff back in the body. So... Soreness is not an end-all be-all. You should be very cognizant. If you have trained a muscle within the last 24 to 48 hours, it is very likely still recovering even without soreness. And if you go and try and do a really, really hard overloading session or uh, like let's say you you blasted your biceps or something really, really crazy, right? You did like 10 sets of 10 to 15. They should be fucked up like by all accounts, right? You're like, this, this, this should have really messed me up. But they're not sore for some reason, right? You might get a little elbow achy. You might get a little forearm achy or something like that. But you don't really have any pain. Should you go and go like rock climbing with your friends the next day? No, that's probably a bad idea even if you're not sore because that muscle is still fucked up. And if you go and do a bunch of rock climbing, it's going to be putting more strain on that. It's going to be putting you at an adverse risk of injury, stuff like that. So one thing that we like to remind people is it's not just the muscle, right? It's also the connective tissue. It's also the nervous system that we have to consider in the recovery time course. The muscle is just usually one of the first things to go when we're overreaching. And that's what we think about more often than not. But sometimes things like your joints can take a huge beating. And if you don't give it that time off, uh, it's not going to recover. And so the muscle would be like a false positive or a false negative in that case. So you might be like, ah, my biceps don't hurt. I can go ahead and train. Well, really your elbow joint hasn't recovered yet, whether it's on the, you know, the triceps or the biceps areas, uh, and you go and train and you're going to keep fucking it up. So soreness is, is a, a good indirect indicator, but it's not an end all be all. And you should always be cognizant. If you have trained something within 24 to 48 hours, it's probably still recovering. I know for me with uh, something like calves, very rarely do they ever get sore, but I will end up, like yeah. you said, I'll get like, I don't know, my feet will end up hurting or just behind my knee, like the tendons behind there will end up aching a bit. And it's just, it, there's some muscles that just, they don't get that same, they're just not very damp, like they just don't get that soreness like other muscles do. Yeah. And, and, and Mike's really good about talking about this. You shouldn't necessarily be chasing soreness as a goal either. I mean, it's like a good, like, it's a good feeling. Like it makes you, helps you remind you that you, you did something good and it's a, it's a satisfying feeling for those of you who, who train, but at the same time, like you can still get a great stimulus and you can still get great growth or strength gains without being sore all the time. And in fact, being sore all the time might on the net be a negative thing, right? Cause mm -hmm. you're actually just chronically under recovered at that point. Brilliant. The next question is from uh, JB038, and they have asked, is there anything that can be done for connective tissue recovery? So we're kind of talking about that. And they said, Ooh, yeah, we just any supplements that you can take as well. So the best thing you can do for connective tissue recovery is two, two things. One, rest. 
to using lighter loads in training. So your connective tissues really take a beating from heavier loads. So load on the bar. So I don't mean volume load in terms of doing lots and sets and reps. What we're talking about here is just how heavy is the weight that you're moving around. That's what really puts a big strain on your joints. Now, unfortunately, unlike your muscles, your joints typically don't have a lot of vascularization. So what that means is they don't get a lot of blood flow all, all day, even when you're training. What that also means is that the recovery time courses can be a bit longer sometimes when they get really messed up. So there's no supplement that can really help uh, joints that are in bad shape in terms of like, can you take glucosamine, chondroitin, that kind of stuff. That's okay. Like on a daily basis, I would say it's probably not worth the money unless you have like chronic joint issues. Uh, for the most part, if you're having joint problems, the first thing you need to think about is giving those areas rest. And that might mean either just taking complete rest or finding alternative movements that don't cause that same joint pain, right? So, for example, if you are doing underhand pull-ups and you're just like, man, I'm just getting elbow tendonitis from this fucking underhand pull-ups, try something else. Try narrow grip. Try overhand. Try wide grip. Try doing some pullovers. Try doing some different row variations, right? At that point, whatever you're doing in that underhand movement is causing that to be inflamed and you need to give it a break. Try and find something else to work around it that you can do pain-free. If you can't do anything pain-free, at that point, you might have to just give it a rest or work with much, much lighter weights doing like really, really high rep ranges, maybe like 10 to 30 or like kind of metabolite style training that will really actually help increase flow to the area because you get that huge pumping effect and the loads are so low, it won't cause a lot of joint flare up. So the big thing again with the joints is how much weight is on the bar. That's really going to cause joint issues to start coming to, uh, to light rest is usually the first, uh, using lighter loads. And then if you need to think about supplementing with something else, that's okay. But at that point, I would go to your doctor or PT and say like, hey, I'm really having a bunch of like knee or elbow problems. Is there something I should be doing? Should I be getting like a cortisol shot or, you know, something like that? My, You know, I know, Steve, you, you probably feel the same way, but like the supplement stuff is more often than not kind of a waste. I mean, yeah. there's a few things out there that are really good. Um, but the effect sizes are really, really tiny. So with, with this stuff, usually what people are trying to do is like, okay, I have like my elbows been fucked up for a while. I don't want to deal with the real problem. I know what the real problem is. The real problem is that like, I need to take a break from all the benching or I need to yeah. do some variation in my benching. They just don't want to do that. Right. They're like, what can I do to keep doing what I'm doing and make this go away? Which is an understandable thought, but it's not going to get the job done. So taking a supplement is usually not going to be powerful enough to fix any of those problems. It's usually got to be back to the drawing board, volume landmarks type situation. All right. I've exceeded my fucking joint. MRV, I got to figure out a way around this. Yeah. I, I mean, I love, I, I'd like to talk a bit more about supplementation actually, because I am exactly along the same lines of you. And I think I recently saw RP strength over on Facebook, put out like their top five fat loss supplements or something. It was like creatine, caffeine, uh, protein powders and carb powders, anything else. There's not sufficient research to back them up. <laughs> Yeah, man, it's, it's, I wish there were, I wish there were, I wish there were more things that were useful, but they're just not. And it, you know, I used to be, um, I used to, I was used my, used to call it a suburban drug cartel where you show up to the gym with a duffel bag full of supplements. You're like, yeah, I got this fucking this, 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 this. It's just like a, it's like breaking bad. You just got like a chemistry set in your gym bag. And the problem is, is that none of that shit does anything. It's a lot of fuss and hassle and it's a lot of money. You know what I mean? And what we find is that doing the basic stuff, right? Like getting your volume landmarks, getting your, you know, uh, recovery strategies in your nutrition. Like those are the things that are going to take you all the way. The supplements can help you a teeny, teeny bit, but man. I hate seeing people waste money on that stuff. Yeah. 
I think one of the things that's become more popular, and I know you've spoken a bit about kind of being in that PNS kind of mode and being kind of nice and relaxed, especially like post-workout, try and de-stress. Um, I think people have tried to maximize that as much as possible. And they've, I think there's some supplements with like ashwagandha. I don't know if you've got had any experience with ashwagandha, whether or not you think that's anything. I wouldn't even know how to, how to spell it. <laughs> I think it's no, very similar sure. to how it sounds. <laughs> Okay. No, I haven't looked into that at all. I know like what the really, what's really big out here. And especially now that I've moved to California is like the cannabinoids and CBD yes. stuff. And the, people are looking at that and saying like, is there anything there? And we actually, somebody just posted a really like, it's, it's massive on RP. There was like an hour or hour and a half long video on wow. the um, scientific research on that. And there's not a ton on it right now, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of big performance-enhancing effects. Uh, what I mean by it is direct performance-enhancing effects, right? But uh, some things like I think uh, some of the cannabinoids and CBD can help people get into a more relaxed state, which is, you know, whether you're using drugs or not, it doesn't really matter. It's kind of the end game is what you want. So that might be useful, and I think more research is going to be coming out on that stuff. It's kind of funny because like um, – here in California, you can just like go to the pot store and like buy a pot <laughs> if you want. I mean, if you do that. Um, so it's kind of a funny thing. And so it's been becoming increasingly popular idea is like, can I use cannabinoids to help me relax? And I, the answer is probably yes. But does it have a direct effect like on your physiology in terms of performance? Probably not. Right. Yeah, I think it's CBD is something uh, Miguel Blacute did like a huge article on our site for. And well, I say huge. There's not actually that much research on it at the moment, so it's it's hard to say much. And obviously, I don't know if you want to talk a bit about, I, I don't want to say it's placebo, but I think that can have a huge effect when you do take supplements like the placebo effect. Yeah, this is where you get, so there's, um, I've always said this and I stand by it now. This is a great example of this saying is uh, there's a science to training and there's an art to coaching. The placebo effect is one of the most powerful effects that you can elicit, whether it's right or wrong. So you have a situation and uh, where you have an athlete and maybe they're taking a bunch of garbage, right? And you see that they're taking a bunch of garbage, but they swear that this garbage is helping them, right? They're like, no, dude, once I got on this fucking garbage, you know, tremble all whatever, 2.0, I'm the man, right? So as a coach, you have an option of saying like, okay, dude, but you, you know that's like just total stupid garbage, right? And if you do that, what's going to happen? You're just going to lose rapport with that person because he's already in. He's already all in on this stupid thing. You know it's stupid. He thinks it's the greatest thing in the world. So you're going to come in and say, dude, that's stupid. Why are you doing that? He's going to be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, you're just going to lose rapport with that guy. Or you can just let him do his thing and think it's the greatest thing and let him ride that wave of confidence and efficacy and just let him do his thing. You know what I mean? It's like with people with massage, like they're like, I love massage. Keep doing, you know, I can say it's dumb all day, but if it makes you feel like it's, it's working, keep doing it. That's the art of coaching, right? Cause if I take that away, now I'm actually disrupting part of their training regime and I'm losing points with my athlete at that point. So there's uh, there's an art there, right, where we we can look at the research and we can say, yeah, this supplement, that supplement, this thing, that thing, it's probably no good. But at the same time, like actually interacting with people and getting them to do what you want is a whole nother ball, ball game. The trouble is, James, when you say it's great for them and then over on your like stories on Instagram, you call it out and say it's rubbish. And then they check in and they're like, dude, you told me I should take this and it's amazing. <laughs> Like I never told you that you just <laughs> thought I did. Yeah, no, it's a hard, it's a hard balance to strike. And it's one of those where you can say, you know, like, you know, Hey, if you want to have a conversation about this, let me know. But at the same time, like you have to weigh the pros and cons of disrupting their, their kind of style and routine 
and you have to make sure that you are, um, you're on a level with them that you can bring those things up and they won't take offense or you won't lose stock with them, right? They can come to you and say, Steve, what do you think about Asha Waja, Waja, And you can say, you know, like, I don't think it's that great. And they can go, oh, okay, you know, maybe I'll reevaluate my position on this, right? Uh, I think more often than not, when you come in guns blazing, like pew, 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 yeah. pew, hey, stupid, 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 you just end up losing points with people yeah. or you, you take them out of the element that has led to them being successful, so... Absolutely. I think that's really, really solid. So in terms of uh, the next question, that is from Milo Wolf, and he is asking about compassionate touching and basically just wanted to know how big of a factor really is that? Like how powerful can compassionate touching be? Not that powerful. It's one of the ones that I think is definitely worth if you have that option available, it's definitely worth pursuing. And I think it's something we can all relate to. So I know like compassionate touching is a funny one because it sounds all weird and sexual or weirdness. Um, it's one of the ones like if you've ever gotten like a nice like shoulder rub or like a head rub from somebody or somebody who's like, like massaged your thigh when you were watching the TV on the couch, like something like that, right? Everyone has been there at some point and knows how nice that feels and how relaxed it makes you. It's not going to be a huge profound thing where we're going to see like your training numbers change and like your all your HRVs like normalized, right? And your resting heart rate goes down. It's not, not like that. It's nothing crazy, right? This is more about generally um, reinforcing social support. So you have a strong enough rapport with somebody that you can uh, be touching them in a semi-intimate way, right? So you have a social support factor there. And you're helping promote uh, relaxation in many ways. So we're actually seeing like total nervous system activity can go down from compassionate touch, which is kind of neat, which on the net balances towards anabolism rather than catabolism. Um, And you can kind of double up on a a bunch of other recovery uh, modalities, like I said, uh, relaxation, social support. So I don't think it's super powerful. I think it's one that you should pursue if the option's available to you, just keeping in mind that uh, it's not it's not a deal breaker. It's not going to be like a, a huge thing, but I think it's a nice thing. And if you have like a, a significant other or a, a friend that you can you 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 can you, you are intimate with on that level, and I mean intimate, not in the sexual sense, just like yeah, if you have a, a guy friend and you don't mind like giving each other a rub down every now and again or something like that. I know that sounds funny, but it's true. Uh, it, it it can be a little bit of a boost to your training program. Absolutely, it's not a huge one, but a boost. I mean, everyone knows it when you kind of like rub a dog's head or rub their belly or whatever, they get a, a oh, good boost out of it. So we're very similar. I think they get a huge boost out of it. I think if we made the recovery pyramid for dogs, <laughs> it'd be like compassionate touch was like two thirds of the pyramid itself. You just wish they could give it back. Then you could just you buy a dog as like a supplement. You're like, oh yeah, he's for my compassionate touch. <laughs> I give him a go yeah. and then he gives my, my head a rub. <laughs> I wish you could like, uh, you could package that dopamine response they get from it, right? And like sell it as a supplement. That would be a amazing <laughs> so just, something just elation <laughs> something we already kind of touched on a little bit actually um is from joseph kaufman who has asked does training a muscle within 24 hours impede recovery yes and no so each muscle group and the type of work done will have a different recovery time course so for example uh if you train your quadriceps like you did a hard set of squats uh multiple sets, right? Can you train quads the next day? Probably not. Why? Because they got really fucked up and they take a little while. What about something like your medial delt? Well, your medial delt's like the size of maybe your pinky finger. And it's one that like you, 
very often can do a hard training session and be actually recovered later that day. And so by the next day, you could actually train again. So what we find is that muscle size, muscle strength, and the, of course, the amount of volume and or intensity trained on that muscle will largely dictate how long it takes. What we find is that bigger muscles have bigger area and can exert more power and force. They generally take a little bit longer to recover than smaller ones, which just cannot inflict that much damage on themselves. So things like your biceps, uh, deltoids, relatively small muscle groups can have a very, very low recovery time course and can be trained pretty frequently, right? And this is why we, we joke about like uh, – guys who skip leg day and they just do arms all the time. Well, why can they do that? Well, the recovery time course for your biceps is actually pretty small, right? You can actually train biceps for men, you know, four times per week, pretty consistently females fuck like four to six times per week pretty easily. Why is that? Well, you can do an overloading session. It just doesn't take that long. Whereas bigger muscles like your pecs, your glutes, quads, things like that, because of the amount of trauma that you can inflict on yourself, because those muscles are so big, and if you're using big compound movements and getting synergy with other muscle groups, you can do a lot of work and a lot of trauma. And it's a lot of area and a lot of materials that needs to get repackaged and put back together. So it just takes a little bit longer. So in some sense, um, if you trained a muscle group like your hamstrings, for example, uh, within 20, like two sessions within 24 hours-ish, yeah, that's going to impede your recovery from the first session, absolutely. Whereas something else like your delts or your biceps, uh, for uh, as an example, maybe not. You might actually be able to do overloading sessions back to back, maybe not every day, but pretty close to it and uh, it's not a big deal. So keep that in mind. So if you have big muscle groups, usually the recovery course is a little bit bigger, moderate, moderate, small, small. That's the general trend. Not always true, but mostly true. Yeah. I think it's, it's something I experimented with, with my calves recently talking about those again. I was just like, I'm just going to try training them every single session and blow <laughs> like they just can, they could just take a beating every session. I think part Which of it's is- just your will to do it. <laughs> Yeah. Well, there's nothing worse than having to do like the marathon calf session twice per week. You know what I mean? That is like a, for me, was like a soul crushing thing where it's like, all right, you got to do my fucking 20 sets of calves now. <laughs> God damn it. Uh, it's just breaking it up into like four sessions is so much easier just even up here. Right. I mean, physically you can do it. And like just having to, I used to call it small off calves cause it was just so <laughs> awful. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Calves is a great example. Something that's kind of jolted something I was thinking about and actually I've been talking to Pascal about a little bit in that I think it's become somewhat uh, kind of accepted in the evidence-based community for kind of how much volume can certain muscle groups kind of benefit from and require in that legs, and I think it was shown with like the Schoenfeld like crazy volume study recently that legs could benefit from more and then kind of upper body was less which is counter to both mine and Pascal's experience. And I think it's also counter to the volume recommendations that RP have out in terms of like the quads and the hamstrings are less set total set hard sets compared to like the chest and the back. And I don't know if you had had seen that yourself and had any thoughts on that. I haven't really like, I didn't do a, a deep dive into that study. I only looked at it very superficially. So I can't really comment on like a really deep level in terms of study design. But a lot of that depends on, of course, the populations that they use and how those assessments were made. Typically, I think uh, that, yeah, I, I agree with what you said. It's kind of counterintuitive to what we would typically experience. Usually, um, the lower body because of the intensity in this case your legs tend to be very strong they get a lot of synergy with like your hips and your lower back 
you can use a lot more weight generally than you can with your upper body, and it doesn't really take a lot to get them going, whereas the upper body seems to they can just take a beating uh, pretty consistently, especially like if you look at like upper back, like lats. How much lat training can you do per week? I mean, I actually had to just give up at one point because I was just doing so many. I was doing like 40 fucking sets. I actually just started doing um, – I, I increased my frequency at that point. I think I talked about it in RP Plus one week. I was just like, okay, I'm just going to start doing like, you know, 10 sets four days a week and see how that goes. And actually that was a massive improvement, but it's still, I could probably be doing more lats. Can I do that on my legs? Fuck, no way. It's just not going to happen. So I'm not sure. It's one of those like uh, weird phenomenon you see in studies. I think it's one of those things we look at it and we can't, we can't t- take a, take a really hard line and say, this is the take home message. I think when we look at that and we say, there's probably different volume recommendations across different muscle groups for various reasons. That would be like kind of my take home on that, where we say, I don't think we can definitively say what those numbers are. I think we can probably say that they're different. And I think for me personally, anyway, and I think for a lot of people, you can kind of, if you're auto-regulating it, if you're like looking, if you're starting off with low numbers and then you're assessing how much you might be able to get away with, then you might find that you're not similar to those numbers or you're completely different. And that's, you always say, and Mike says, like, you put out these numbers and their ranges a lot of the time, but you got to find your own landmark. Yeah, it's it's like literally the the numbers we put out there as like guidelines is like a, it's like a dartboard, right? Where you just you just gotta throw the dart and hope that it sticks on the board, and then after that you gotta figure it out for yourself, right? So for like for um, relatively untrained females, like they're gonna be either at the very top end of those ranges or even beyond some of those ranges, right? Whereas advanced males, like who are been training for 15 plus years, who are very strong and muscled, right? They're going to be probably on the bottom end of that or maybe even in a different range altogether, right? So there's a huge individualization factor there. So just think, like I said, think of those as like a dartboard to get you started. Like all you got to do is throw the dart and hope it sticks and then go from there and then make your own adjustments. And something else along those lines, I think would be really interesting to hear your take on it, James, is kind of the exercises like vol- counting volume can be quite difficult at times because for example you could probably do maybe i don't know you could easily do over 20 sets of leg extensions probably for the quads you're not doing 20 sets of squats so i don't know if uh-uh. obviously like for me personally i probably can do two sets in my first week of like heavy squats along with a, a small amount of additional work and my quads are sore again for like half a week Whereas if I did like Smith machine squats or even leg press, I couldn't do that little and still see that response. I don't know if you want to talk a bit about that and sometimes like bang for buck exercises in that kind of regard. Yeah, yeah. So Mike has been um, trying to kind of formalize some of these ideas and a couple uh, terms he's thrown out lately, which I think are really nice, are uh, stimulus to fatigue ratio as well as efficiency, right? So stimulus to fatigue ratio basically in in, in this context deals with how much growth are you getting from a movement relative to how much fatigue you are generating from that movement, right? So in a bodybuilding context, a really poor example might be a deadlift, right? Where you're going to get some growth from a deadlift, but the amount of fatigue you generate at the same time kind of outweighs how much growth you're getting comparatively. Whereas something else like a stiff-legged deadlift or maybe like a 45-degree back raise in terms of glute and hamstring development is a much more favorable trade-off in terms of stimulus to fatigue ratio because you're really training that 
muscle hard. It's getting a great growth and it's not systemically taxing you to the point where you can't do anything else. Right. So that's good there. There's also this idea of efficiency, which is basically how much volume do you have to put in to get the same amount of growth? Right. And like you said, this is a great example in this idea where high bar squats, you only need like a couple sets to get going. Whereas something like a knee extension, leg press or Smith machine squat, you might need like four or five sets to get that same effect. Right. So what we would say is that's a poor efficiency example where the high bar squats got you a lot of gains with very little input. Whereas to get the same input, you would have to add or uh, maybe even multiply the amount of work you did by two or 2.5 from a different movement. In that case, it's a poor efficiency in terms of how much energy you have to expend, how much sets and reps you have to do to get the same growth that you got from something else. So on that note, this idea of picking movements that are really, really good for you is really interesting. This is a huge part of individualization. So uh, the example you gave with the knee extensions is a really good one because I can squat quite a I can do a lot of sets of squats and I'll get fucked up at some point, but it takes a lot to get me going. Knee extensions. I can do three sets of knee extensions and I can't walk for days. Right? Wow. <laughs> Why is that? I don't know. It's just the way that I'm built. Maybe there's an occlusion effect from the, cause I have long legs or something. Who knows? I don't know, but there's definitely an individualization factor there for me where I get a lot out of knee extensions or a lot of people don't get dick out of knee extensions. They don't get anything. Right? So what that means is you essentially have to find movements where Doing them doesn't require a huge monumental effort and you get a lot out of it, right? So for example, you might find that like you don't get dick from doing barbell bench press. You don't feel it in your chest. You don't get a pump. You don't feel like you get any growth. Your strength doesn't go up. But for whatever reason, when you do incline dumbbells, your shit just goes through the roof, right? That's an example of an, a good individualization choice in terms of efficiency where the incline dumbbells, just for whatever reason, whether it's your technique or whether it's your anthropometry or whatever, are just a better movement. You don't have to do very much. You get sore, you get pumped, you get everything, and that's good. So there's there's some kind of general guidelines we can give for some of those things. Like we can say like, okay, you know, barbell movements tend to be really, really good in terms of stimulus to fatigue ratio, as well as efficiency. Um, machines can be really good, but sometimes their efficiency is lower because you have to do a lot of them to get the same effect. Da, 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 da. But ultimately it's a lot of trial and error. You have to go try these movements, try them for different, not just once, try them for a whole mesocycles at a time, right. see how it goes and then go from there. So, um, uh, a couple just like personal examples, and I don't I don't like to use anecdote, but just to drive home this idea of individualization, right? Uh, I know for me, uh, close grip underhand pull-ups is one of the few things where I will feel anything in my lats, like period. So I know that when I'm really trying to work on my lats, I use close grip underhand variations, whether it's a pull-up or a pull-down or even, um, you know, like a neutral close grip kind of thing. Those really work for me. I also know that wide grip bench, because I have gigantic stretch Armstrong arms, does tend to work really, really well for me if I want to develop my pecs, whereas like medium and close grip, I don't really get a ton of pec out of it. So wide grip really works well for me. So those are movements that I go to when I'm really trying to develop those areas. Likewise, the knee extensions, like those fuck me up in a way that I just cannot describe. I can't walk. I'm fucked up for days. I know that I can just do a, a, you know, a reasonable amount of squats. And I can put in a very low amount of knee extensions and I'll get a lot of quad growth out of it for whatever reason. Everyone will have to figure out what those movements are for themselves. You can't just say like, oh, James said knee yeah. extensions, right? No, that might not be true at all for you. Um, but what you want to see is essentially if we're talking about volume landmarks, something that gets you all of the kind of the ghetto 
MEV estimators with actual very, very low MEV numbers, right? So like Steve said, you might only do two sets of squats and get good pumps, good strength, good soreness, all that stuff. That's ideal. That's exactly what you want. You want to be able to do like two or three sets on week one, hit all the ghetto MEV estimates, and then you are able to progress all the way up to what is a very reasonable MRV. That's like the golden zone of, um, in terms of exercise selection, what you don't want is to start something where you have to do like six to eight sets to get anything out of it, right? So if you go and you're like, okay, today I'm working on delts, I'm going to go to the delt, you know, schmegma machine, and you just got to sit there all fucking day, like eight sets to get anything going. That's a waste of your time in terms of efficiency, whereas doing something else like an upright row or even a dumbbell uh, lateral raise or upright row, you might only need to do like two or three sets and you'll already get a huge pump and soreness from that. That's the idea there. So start, you want to find exercises where you get all of those things like pumps, soreness, progressing in uh, the either the volume or the intensity that you can use with very, very low starting numbers, but those numbers are able to expand out to much higher numbers up to what you estimate to be towards your MRV for those movements. Brilliant. Yeah, I really like that. I think as soon as you guys started talking about kind of the ghetto MEV concept, that really helped <laughs> me on like just in my own sessions kind of think about things a little bit more and I've started utilizing it with clients and they're just thinking about exercises more. Where do they get like good mind-muscle connection? What movements are actually good for them? Or like they think they should be able to do squats and that should be a good movement for them. But when they think about the things you talked about, the pump, the soreness, kind of how much progress they get, there's barely anything. Whereas it might be a leg press for them. So I think that's really helpful. For sure. And the one thing like, so I'm like, oh, I'm always like the curmudgeon old man over here. When people, when clients are saying like, I don't get anything from like a movement that you like, you, it's hard to argue against. So if a client's like, I don't get anything from high bar squats, you got to give them that stink eye, right? Because you're like, I know that high bar squats on average are good in terms of stimulus to fatigue and good in terms of efficiency. So it makes me think like, what are you doing? Send That would be like, I'd be like, send me a video yeah. of your squat because I bet you're doing some stupid ass shit, right? And more often than not, it's not that they're doing something really stupid. I'm, I'm just embellishing a little bit, but more often than not, they're doing the movement in a way which might be technically sound, like you look at it and you're like, okay, there's nothing wrong with this, but they're not doing it in a way that's actually training the targeted muscle groups. They might be relying more heavily like on their posterior chain or their upper back muscles to kind of up the squat up rather than letting their knees displace forward and really working on the quads or some, something like along those lines. And that's where you have to kind of, and we joke about this on RP+, you got to shit test your technique. Yeah. If you're doing a movement that's generally scores high on those things and you're seemingly getting nothing out of it you might have to really work on that mind muscle connection work on your grip placement foot placement modify the technique a little bit until you can really feel that muscle working like for example like even though bench regular bench press isn't a great movement for me i know how to bench press to make it a good movement you know what i mean yeah i know that there are better choices for me but i know that i can modify any technique to feed my to meet my individual needs so always be skeptical of yourself you know when you think like oh this is just a bad movement for me shit test it first give it one or two mesocycles modify the technique until you can try and get a good mind muscle connection all that stuff and then if you do if you run it for two mesos and you're like this movement sucks it sucks it's not for you move on to a new one and that's fine yeah i think i can completely even give an example myself for high bar squats not that they've ever been bad for me but there was a time where i was getting pretty heavy in terms of loads on the bar and they started beating up my hips and like my knees and not so much getting so much in my quads. And I just mm. found I was kind of almost dive bombing them a little bit and not controlling things as well as I should. And as soon as I went to controlling the entire movement, not using the stretch reflex to a large degree at all, 
they just became a really great movement again. It's a brilliant example. And that's something that like you kind of, you get into that movement training mindset where you're like, okay, I have yeah. this weight. I have this many reps. I just got to like fucking blast through this. Right. But for physique training, no, it's like each one of those reps counts and you got to make the most of it. So that's an awesome example. Cool. So actually to, to ask, uh, I, I'm not going to ask any more questions. The other thing I wanted to ask about was in terms of the stimulus fatigue for to fatigue ratio, um, I'd love to hear you kind of apply that to the reps and reserve concept, which obviously I think has been like RP has been out there for a while now, but I think you guys really popularized kind of reps and reserve or reps from failure training. So I'd love to hear you talk about that. Yeah. So, you know, when I have worked with athletes in the past, when I was doing more like personal training and strength conditioning stuff, we would usually use a fixed set and rep scheme. That was kind of the go-to. I really started getting more into the um, reps and reserve or from fail style when I started doing more online stuff. Because when you're coaching somebody in person, you can see like, okay, right. that last set was all grinders. Like every one of them was one from fail. It was just horrible grinder set, right? When you're working with somebody remotely, you can't know how close they are to failure or how, how much relative effort they're putting in. So you have to kind of program it in such a way where they're not either under training all the time or over training all the time. And that's when this reps and reserve uh, thing can be really, really helpful, especially for your online clients. Now, what's really interesting is that the reps and reserve is a measure of relative intensity and relative intensity can be broken down a number of different ways, like percentage of your one rep max, percentage of maximal movement speed. There's a number of ways, but that's just one of them. And reps and reserve basically says, okay, if I was to make a all out effort and go to failure, right? What would that be? Okay. Take that. And now I'm going to back off a certain number of reps, right? So instead of getting 10, which would be 10 would be like gun to my head, had to get all the reps, right? That would be best effort. I say, okay, now we're going to back that up and say, do one from failure. So that would be about nine, do two from failure. That'd be eight, et cetera. What that does is ensures that you're kind of at least in for, for our purposes in physique training in what we would kind of consider a golden zone of relative intensity, which is roughly somewhere between five and you could say zero, but I would say one reps in reserve from a maximal effort. Why is that? Well, what we have found is that less than that, uh, excuse me, is probably not good enough in terms of either the absolute load on the bar or the relative effort that you have to put into each set to get a lot of gain. So going less than five reps in reserve means you're probably just underdoing it quite a bit. You could be training harder without very much penalty, right? On the other hand, training above like one, if you're at one or uh, even at the failure point, what we have is a problem of training too hard. And we can measure that in terms of stimulus to fatigue ratio. So what we find is that there's kind of an asymptotic curve in terms of how much you get out of increasing the relative intensity, right? So from about four to close to one, you get basically an asymptote, a plateauing shape where increasing the relative intensity does increase the amount of gains you get per repetition. But to a point and somewhere around like two or one, it kind of from effectively flattens out in terms of how much you can get from it. Now, unfortunately, that curve is not the same if we take that same idea and say, how much fatigue do we get per rep, right? Um, uh, unfortunately, it's a very different looking curve where now we actually see an exponential jump uh, <laughs> twice. We get like kind of a, a sigmoid shape where we see the first curve somewhere around like three to two kind of like levels out and then from like two to zero takes off again. So what that means is although training with very, very low reps and reserves, so like one or zero, 
is very stimulative in terms of per rep effort, it's also massively fatiguing, way, way, way more so than doing something closer to like four to two, right? So what we find is that in terms of making a a good long-term plan, even a good moderate-term plan, training at the failure point or very, very close to it, unfortunately, is a short-term gain at a long-term cost scenario where you're just going to be accumulating fatigue really, really fast. You might be eking out just an inch, a little bit more gains per session, which is cool, right? You're really getting as much gains as you possibly can out of it, but you will not be able to sustain that type of training for a very long time without either having to deload all the time, which essentially takes the time away from gains or having to do bigger, more powerful recovery strategies. So, We generally look at stimulus to fatigue ratio in terms of reps and reserve with that golden zone of probably somewhere around two seems to be on average a really good spot where you're not hitting that second exponential curve in terms of fatigue per reps and you're kind of maxing out how much gains per rep you you essentially are getting. So it's kind of a funny thing. It's not something that you'll find in like an exercise physiology textbook. It's something that is a lot of I would call indirect research where there's a lot of things kind of pointing in this direction, but there's not like a a single study that says like this definitively is this, right? that, That won't exist. You have to kind of consolidate hundreds of studies that are all kind of pointing towards a central theme, which is like as you raise the relative intensity, you make more gains, but you also make exponentially more fatigue, right? So because physique training is so dependent on the amount of volume, amount of work you put in, Raising the relative intensity essentially only limits that. It's not a favorable trade-off. Whereas if you were a strength sports athlete, a team sports athlete, maintaining a high intensity, uh, absolute intensity and relative intensity to some degree is necessary in order to get stronger and faster. You cannot get faster without making maximal movement efforts. That's just how it goes, right? Do you need to make maximal efforts for bodybuilding? No, no, absolutely not. That's the big differentiating factor here, right? You need to put in lots of volume. If you are getting lots of intensity, it's going to limit the amount of volume you can put in by lowering your MRVs, right? Across the board, whether it's systemic or per muscle group or all of those things. So it's just an unfavorable trade-off. We say, okay, yeah, you can you can really make it hard on yourself and try and inch out more and more gains, but that program will be short-lived. You will not be able to sustain it in the long term. So if you look at long-term gains, you will see a big spike in the beginning, like and then just plateau off versus doing a more moderate reps and reserve on average. You'll see kind of more of a wave-like linear over time, which is what we want to see. Yeah, I think in in my own experience, when I started using that kind of starting off with higher reps and reserve and moving towards lower ones, it just smoothed progression much more. Whereas I'd always, maybe I'd be at a two or a one rep and reserve consistently and I could train week to week, but often I'd just end up repeating performance and no sessions would feel like everything would be somewhat hard. I'd never have super hard challenging sessions like I do now, or I might get there, but the fatigue would start building up really rapidly. Whereas when I started and with clients transitioning from the kind of four or three reps in reserve towards failure over weeks, you get that really nice kind of overload and what might kind of term the easy gains. And then you just have smooth transitions towards really hard training eventually that's like horrible absolutely absolutely and you know what's fucked up too is like there's obviously physical effects and that's probably what we're talking about the most but let's not forget the psychological toll of going one or zero from failure you know what i mean you have to get fucking amped up to really truly put in that kind of effort how many days per week can you do that i can do it maybe once per month if i'm lucky like truly right to get that pumped up up here 
to make that kind of effort because it's pain, it's suffering, it's a lot of energy, it's exhaustion, and then it's a huge recovery. You know, like if you try and yeah. do like a, an AMRAP set for like a deficit deadlift or something, you're going to be fucked for the rest of that day and for days after. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like uh, when we're thinking about like, and you know, obviously I'm a little biased towards recovery, but when we're thinking about like training and recovery stuff, you also have to factor in like the psychological fatigue of trying to train that way. It's mm-hmm. really hard to get amped up to the gym, to amped up to go to the gym and know that you're going to every single set's going to be at the point of failure or almost, almost at it. It's just tough, hard. Awesome. James, I want to say a massive thank you for this podcast. We've been going over a little over an hour. I could keep going talking to James, as you can see. <laughs> Uh, he's just a, a great guy, knows a lot and uh, actually explains things in a really nice way that's really easy to understand, which I really appreciate because there's really smart people out there who can't quite do that. And uh, James is really good at that. So again, to Thank remind you, you um, James and Mike and Gabrielle will be in London on the 11th and 12th of May. At time of recording this, we still have like one or two VIP tickets. They'll probably be sold out by the time this comes out. Uh, but there are still... Um, general tickets for the 11th. So it'd be amazing to see as many faces there. And James, if people want to kind of find out more about you or find out kind of anything where you're putting out information or um, social media things, where should they look? Well, I've been criticized for my social media accounts not being exciting enough. But I'm on uh, Instagram as RP Dr. James. Uh, I'm on Facebook just as myself. If you are interested in the things like we were talking about today, you can check uh, Mike and I do a weekly webinar on a program called RP Plus, which is just you get to write in every week. If you have questions, you can just send a message on the forum. We'll pick them out of the forum and answer your questions every week live. Those are the big places you can find me. I don't know on Instagram, you recently shared, I think it was some sort of meme or something, which I found incredibly hilarious and I had to check out oh, that page. Oh, the gym fuckery one? <laughs> yeah. Oh, dude, there's so, I was, I was like all day, all day on that page. Dude. It's just, for those of you who don't know, check out gym fuckery. It's an Instagram page where they just look at people doing dumb shit in the gym. It's amazing. That was hilarious. Amazing. So again, thank you, James. Thank you everyone for listening and we will catch you soon. Thanks for having me.